0: Hello and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm your co-host, Lee Kunla, and together with me are your fellow co-hosts, Nathan Radke. Hello, Lee. And Elena Papianis. Hi. So today, I'm going to take you back to my youth when I was uh, in grade eight, and I got caught up in a pop culture scene uh, that had just started a few years earlier. I remember a good friend of mine bringing into school a cassette tape on a Sony Walkman of Nirvana's Teen Spirit, Smells Like Teen Spirit.
1: There's a bunch of things that we should probably explain at this point. One, what a cassette tape was.
0: That's right. It's how, it's how we used to listen to music. If you're not music. sure,
2: Google it, yeah. and you'll see them. the images come up.
0: It was after 8-tracks and LPs, but before CDs and MP3s.
1: Yeah, they weren't great. The one thing that they were good for is if you had a crush on somebody, you could mm-hmm. make them a mixed tape, the mix tape. Yes. and then just casually give so it to them, good. even though you had just spent like probably four hours the night before making it, you could just sort of be like, I don't care, take this, whatever, I don't even like it.
0: <laughs> and uh, Sony Walkman was a way you could listen to cassette tapes. It yeah. was the early version of an MP3 player.
1: Yeah. yeah, it was the first way that a person could bring their own personal music and listen listen in isolation to their headphones. It's it right.
2: incredibly cumbersome when you look back at it. Yeah. yeah like this big box you're carrying around.
0: And yet somehow still better than the technology that followed it, which was the portable CD
1: player, oh, which yeah. just didn't work. That was bad and skippy. Skipped. Yes. The problem the Walkman had is once the battery started to go, your song would slow down. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And then you'd be like, I got to get to a variety store quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that people need to know in addition to what cassette tapes were is just the sad state of the music scene in Lee's childhood in my childhood and, and i guess elena elena's oh, uh, yeah, childhood was as there.
0: well yeah, was yeah. it uh, was it was phil collins and uh, new kids on the block on the i actually
2: block. liked new kids on the block from that at that age i'm a bit younger than you and i was like i liked joey he was the youngest yeah, one yeah, yeah. He, was well, I th- mean, he was like the little baby <laughs> face how could one. you not like joey yeah <laughs> yeah
1: but musically yeah.
0: they were maybe
2: oh, they
1: didn't no. really stand the test yeah, of time no. i but, ended up a nirvana fan and i would say there wasn't much edge to it yeah, no, <laughs> no that's it was true. real shiny, Very it was snuffy. real corporate. Same thing with Phil Collins, there's like a sheen over all of the music that we were hearing, yeah, to the point where I just basically given up on the radio, yeah. And then,
0: and then, and then this uh motley group of long haired freaks show up and playing this really great hardcore garage rock and roll punk music, and it blew my mind. I remember. As soon as we heard it, we all started to try and mosh to the song, which is a, for those kids out there, kind of They'll dance. There's still no where, moshers. There's still moshers out there. run into yeah. each yeah. other.
1: I mean, last year, Lee and I were in a mosh pit. That's right.
0: I wasn't going to admit to that publicly. but <laughs>
1: That was like almost a year ago today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I got swept up in this scene uh, that, was, that came at exactly the right time for me. Um, I was right at that moment where I was probably going to latch on to anything that was happening. And that was happening. And that was great. And, you know, me and a whole bunch of people of of that age, we changed the way we dressed and got really into plaid shirts and bandanas and ripped jeans and things like that.
2: Basically everything that people are wearing again now. That's right. Yeah. That's right. right. It felt
0: like the first time when we were doing it. And, you know, bands like... uh, Pearl Alice, Jam, Alice in Chains, Alice in Chains Mud Honey, yeah, uh, all kind of were part of that grunge scene that for me was really epitomized by uh, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. Now, that had to have been in 1989. And I remember not that long later, it was 1994, I was driving my 1984 Fiero car, which is a terrible car.
1: But which you should I, also Google. Yes, mm-hmm. Or uh, bing. You can bing it if you want, if you're that person. There
0: was actually a, uh, a disclaimer in the car that said it would catch on fire if I got into an accident. No. Because it was made out of plastic, fiberglass. Anyway, I was, I was driving home from my girlfriend's place, and I was listening to the radio. And the uh, news came on that uh, Kurt Cobain had committed suicide, at, at which... Point, we should probably make a trigger warning about the fact that this is going mm-hmm. to be a podcast about uh, somebody taking their own life. And maybe you don't want to listen to this one.
1: If you're feeling sensitive about that sort of thing. Also, if you're feeling sensitive about that sort of thing, maybe go talk to a loved one about it. Mm-hmm.
0: If you're sticking around, then we're going to look into this. Uh, because it was a suicide, or maybe it wasn't.
1: Yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the conspiracy theory that Kurt Cobain did not take his own life, but that actually there was a conspiracy to murder Cobain. The whole grunge movement, Elena, what was your relationship to it? Because it was super formative for Lee. It was super formative for me as well. Not yeah. just like the music, which I loved, and the fashion, which was great, because it was jeans and T-shirts, which was easy to pull off. Yeah. <laughs> but also politically. I mean, it was an early musical form that was... It tended to be pro-feminist, anti-homophobia, anti-racist. Like, it was a real threat against the status quo.
2: Yeah, I was in it, but I was one of those people who, like, was still listening to Sarah McLachlan as well. (gasps) And, you know, and Nirvana and Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, like, so it was, you know, a mix of everything. But, yeah, like, Nirvana felt different. It's one of those sort of, it's one of those bands that still, when I hear today, like, brings up memories like it feels very visceral listening to Mm -hmm. Nirvana. it's still something that was so formative because I remember listening to some of their albums especially like the Unplugged album like over and over again and seeing it on MTV when they recorded and stuff and it's just really formative
0: that was also still when MTV mattered and when Mm -hmm. people put out things like music videos that were watched by a lot of people
1: and there were concerts Lee, you're sounding very close to a 40-year-old man. At this point. <laughs> <laughs> maybe stop. Back, maybe that, stop That, now, that, that was stop back now. in the day when things were good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so how do we find ourselves to the, at the point where we're asking this sort of bizarre question? It seems so cut and dried. Because, uh, like Lee said, I, I also remember hearing this on the radio and hearing a bunch of aspects of it that made it seem like this wasn't much of a mystery. He was found at home in uh, the sort of greenhouse over his garage, He had shot himself with a shotgun. He had, first of all, taken a massive, basically lethal dose of heroin.
2: It was like three times the amount, I think, of an average. That's the
1: number I've seen. And that's for a a heavy user. Three times the amount to kill a heavy user. Something like 12 times the amount needed to kill a non-user. The door had been locked from the inside. There was a suicide note. His wallet was out in the open, sitting on top of sitting on top of the ground, and then on top of the wall was his driver's license, and so he could be identified. He had close family members who had committed suicide themselves. There just seemed like a wealth of e- He had tried to commit suicide apparently just a few uh, weeks earlier. So it just seemed like there was a wealth of evidence that this was clearly just a very tragic example of somebody killing themselves.
0: And it seemed also to follow in a pattern of Famous musicians killing themselves. It didn't seem that unusual that somebody who at a young age becomes immensely famous and rich is maybe overwhelmed by that. And you think about people like Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison Janis Joplin, Janis Amy Joplin. Winehouse,
2: too, was 27. I That's think. right. Yeah. Exactly. There's the a lot of... Club.
1: Um, Oh, yeah, Elena, you should explain what the 27 Club is in case anybody doesn't know. Right.
2: So just the 27 Club is all these famous, mainly musicians that that all seem to have, well, all have died at the age of 27. So there's this mythology that's grown around that, that it's like this, you know, magical number for deaths or suicides by these young, talented musicians. Mm. To the point,
1: even when Kurt Cobain dies at 27, apparently his mother says, I told him not to join that stupid club. Referring to as 27. Oh, really?
2: But we looked it up, we looked into it too, and the uh, the average death of a musician is actually 56, the average age of death. So it actually, you know, statistically isn't, but it's because such prominent people have died at the age of 27, it begins to sort of take on this this mold.
0: Mm -hmm. Seems like a pattern. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Lots of them have died at 28 or 26 or whatever. I mean, one thing that does seem to hold true, though, is that fame is not good for you. No. Like, it is not necessarily something that's going to bring people happiness. We, When we did our Marilyn Monroe cast, I think this came out as well. There's just such a difference between what we expect fame to be like and then what it actually turns right. into. Mm-hmm.
0: And to your point, Nathan, this is why it didn't seem suspicious to me when I was driving home and I listened to the radio and I heard that he had killed himself. It seemed as though as tragic as it was and as unexpected as it was for me, uh, to hear about that, it didn't seem strangely surprising.
2: Well, and he, he was such a clearly troubled person, right? It was part of, that was his, part of his persona and his sensitivity that made Mm -hmm. him the musician, you know, the great musician that he was and write the songs that he did. Right. But clearly like fame was not what he wanted it to be either like he he wasn't happy seeing the impact he had on people and people in the crowds apparently he'd he'd witnessed some people like doing drugs or doing heroin right there mm-hmm. and kind of you know look back and be like what is happening like I hope I'm not inspiring people mm-hmm. to do these things and so it was a weird like I think fame ended up being a weird mirror for him too that that really further troubled him
1: he also really struggled with the fact that a lot of the people who were his fans, who were big Nirvana fans, were people that he would have disliked, and people that mm-hmm. would have picked on him in high school. Mm-hmm. Like, right. People that, these are the, he's like, I'm complaining about you in these songs, and you're dancing <laughs> around to them, right. and you, you don't realize it. Yeah, it did seem to make sense in a tragic, sort of terribly predictable way. And
2: his childhood as well. Like, yeah. So it, um, did his parents split quite early?
1: They split pretty early.
2: Right. And he lived, he ended up living with, uh, I think, a friend. Like, I think he just slept on a friend's couch for I don't know how long. um, Instead of, like, he just didn't want to be in his his mother's house that he was living in. Yeah, he
1: started off with his mom. He was having a lot of troubles. He got medicated. The medication didn't seem to work very well. She didn't think that she could control him any longer. So then he goes to his dad's. And he's at his dad's for a bit. And then there's problems there. And so then he ends up with friends and on a lot of couches and just, he had a middle-class, uh, lifestyle growing up, but it was not a stable one. And it wasn't one mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. provided him any kind of sense of family.
2: No. And he was physically in a lot of pain too. He had like constant stomach pains from what I've read.
1: Yeah. The, the stomach pain is interesting. And we'll come back to that because a lot of people also said, oh, well, the, the stomach pain was a reason for the suicide. Mm-hmm. He just couldn't take it any longer. Mm. So we're going to come back to all of those things that we've just mentioned, because as it turns out, there's issues with all of them, mm-hmm. starting with the stomach pain. Uh, for a long time, it was undiagnosed. It's been argued that that's part of the reason he started doing heroin in the late 80s is because of the to pain. To manage the pain, I see. Uh, friends of his like, um, Buzzo from the Melvin said that it's more likely that the heroin was contributing to his stomach pain. Right. Because right. one of the many things that heroin does is right. it makes it hard for you to eat and makes it throw up a lot. But actually, at the time of his death, they had fixed his stomach pain. It turned out to be a pinched nerve in his back. Oh, you're
2: kidding. Oh. And
1: he was, like, without stomach pain for wow. the first time in a long time when he died. Mm-hmm. So let's go through some of these other bits of evidence that made it so clear that it was a suicide. Um, the driver's license, I think we can pretty much mm-hmm. deal with immediately. Because...
2: Yeah. Wasn't at the cop? One of the cops who was there on the scene had taken it out of his wallet and put it there just as an identifying... Mm-hmm saying that they could record.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no debate about that. It yeah. was the police officer who took out the license, not Cobain. Uh, the fact that he had locked himself in, which seems, no pun intended, like an open-and-shut case then, that obviously he took his own life. Right. If you look at the photograph of the door, it's not a deadbolt that you have to lock from the inside. It's a door handle lock that you can lock and then shut the door from the outside and oh, it lock. Oh, I see. So that that is not evidence for it. The previous suicide attempt is... Sort of tricky. Well, no. it's
2: it's like a sort of revisionist version of what the story was, right? Like, it was in Rome.
1: Yeah, he was in Rome. He had been touring with Nirvana in Europe. Um, Didn't he OD? Wasn't that his Valium? Or? It was.
2: It was Rohitnol, Rohitnol. and, like, right, champagne. Okay. Yeah. But it was Courtney Love's doctor in England who was... The prescription was under. It was her drugs that he ended up ODing on. And yeah. at the time... Uh, Did he have a note with that one, too? He did. She said she burned it.
1: Yeah, she said that he had a note. Yeah. In fact, she was the one who said that this was a suicide attempt. But
2: at first, they just called it an accident.
1: Yeah, and he said it was an accident. Right. And the doctor said it was an accident. Right. And this is where uh, another figure starts to show up. And obviously, this figure is going to figure large in the story. And that's Courtney Love, his uh, wife at the time. With that, maybe let's start with that suicide attempt, or the so-called suicide attempt. It happens in Rome. He's touring uh, with Nirvana in Europe for the In Utero tour. The In Utero was their final studio album. Courtney Love, his wife, is not with him. She shows up. He is in Rome. He has some problems with laryngitis and bronchitis, and so he's taking a couple days off. She shows up. He overdoses the next day. She tells the press later that he had taken 60 pills, which were in individual blister packs, which isn't something you can Hmm. do accidentally. That's why they put pills in blister Mm -hmm. packs. Mm -hmm. The doctor who treated him, Dr. Galena, said that, no, that wasn't the case. That was not what they got out of his stomach, that that is incorrect that he had individually taken 60 pills. So right away we start to see some inconsistencies between what Courtney Love is telling the press and then what other people are uh, saying
2: and that will be the only consistent thing about courtney love and all of this is her inconsistency Mm. yeah she's going to be
1: telling a lot of stories and a lot of them aren't going to make much sense all of the family members that were supposed to have killed himself all of cobain's personal family members there was one guy who accidentally shot himself in a bar in the 30s uh and there was one guy who fell down a staircase drunk and died those do do not seem to me like clear-cut suicide no
0: i was going to say they don't seem to count
1: no but the suicide note, I mean, that is always the thing for us lay people. When we hear somebody's killed themselves, we think, oh, did they leave a note? Hmm. Uh, first of all, I've heard that it's actually <clears throat> unusual for people to leave notes. It's not It's not the, the normal thing to do. It happens, but it's it, it's not common. And two, the suicide note itself is something that deserves, I Maybe think, I'll closer post a pi- attention. I'll
2: post a picture of it on Instagram. Ooh, good idea. Later.
1: So we all have a copy of it. And Lee, I want you to look at this note and tell me what you notice about it.
0: The handwriting's not easy to decipher, I no. have to admit.
1: It's handwritten. It's to Boda, who was Kurt Cobain's imaginary friend when he was a kid. Oh, interesting. Right. Are you suggesting the handwriting changes?
0: I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm, I can go down that route because I actually, <laughs> this is very um, off topic, but I, I did I was at an archive and I did some work with a guy's philosophy, and he, had, he I, I was working on all this handwritten stuff, and his handwriting is, was a disaster. It was really interesting. People who ran the archives, they had actually created a legend for how to decipher his handwriting. This is not the Kirk Cobain letter I'm hmm. talking about, but what was interesting is that for, say, the letter F, there were maybe five or six versions of the letter F that you would find in his uh, handwriting. So, right. Depending right. on the
1: letter that came before it, probably, or the letter that was coming after it, exactly, might be a little different. And handwriting analysis is not a science. That's right.
0: So, so when you are, I guess, yeah, you were angling for me to say that in the suicide note, if that is indeed what it is, the the bottom it is true um, does seem different than uh, the body of the letter. So there's and that
1: a, is a that's a radical difference from the earlier part of the letter,
0: and it's it's, uh, it's
1: larger. That's right. It's shakier. Yeah. And the early part of the letter, which is written in very small font, Mm -hmm. isn't about killing himself. Right. It's about quitting the music industry. It's about how much he used to love playing music and now he doesn't love it anymore. Yeah. And it's only in those last four lines, which are in a larger font and a different font, in which he talks when he says, please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, his daughter, Mm -hmm. for her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. Mm
0: -hmm. All. This Gets dark, yes. I don't know if I were to write a note like this that is dark. If I would start with, Hey, world, I'm going to kill myself. If I wouldn't, maybe, start with what had what was my own history that brought me to that point. And I'm sure, and again, you know, I don't actually know it much about his personal life, but if somebody in this position, somebody who has become extremely famous through music, who's really dedicated his life to this scene might start with his disappointments in Mm -hmm. what he was expecting out of that and then lead into
2: and i mean you don't know what state like let's say it was written all at the same time and it was written all by kurt you don't know what state he's in by the time he's reached the end Right. For anyone who's ever done any journaling and written a little sad entry, right? You might start with a little rant at the beginning, get really emotional by the yeah. end, close that, it all up. That
1: example was so specific,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good one because it shows also how you can uh, bring yourself into a certain kind of frame of mind. Right? right? You start out with something that's bugging you, yeah. and you end up with. And by the way, the whole world is right. terrible, or so like something hate, huge or yeah. bigger,
2: or you know. Um, and your writing changes with your emotions too, so it's like an angry little rant. Maybe turns into an emotional goodbye. Huh, you I know? should start journaling. You should start journaling. And having emotions. And having emotions. <laughs> Those, they're really helpful. Wow. sometimes, well, sometimes. sometimes overrated. Sometimes yeah. but,
0: but Nathan, you were suggesting that there's something wrong with a note, or at least there's some It has suspicion. been
1: suggested that mm-hmm. there's something wrong with it's a not note. It's not just Nathan. No, it's not just me. Um, and looking at it, I am certainly sympathetic to that point of view. Like, okay. I can see oh, yeah, what people are saying when they see this note. So, there uh, what does seem, this is in itself is certainly not enough evidence of foul play. But when I look at the note and when other people look at the note, they say, well, there does seem to be something kind of odd. And so
2: there are experts that have said both things, right? There's experts who have said it's not the same writing and ones that have said it is the same writing, right? So there's no clear...
0: What are some of the other things people have pointed out that makes them suspicious about this note and what it's claiming to be?
1: Well, I think maybe what we should do at this point is sort of run a parallel history. Uh, Lee talked about his experience uh, of this event as a young kid growing up in Canada. So let's go over to uh, the West Coast of the United States and look at those events uh, from someone else's perspective, somebody who was intimately involved with it, which is uh, a figure who's going to be very important to this conspiracy, a guy called Tom Grant.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So he was hired by Courtney Love when Kurt, was missing in the in the days before they found his body. And so he was in touch with Courtney. She gave him some instructions for like, check this hotel out, check this place out. He might be here, he might be here. These are the people he hangs out with. Um, and hooked him up with Dylan, who was Kurt Cobain's best friend, to help him tour around and search their home and everything. But Tom Grant pretty much immediately becomes suspicious of Courtney Love, or just in his discussions with her, he just had his Spidey Sense investigator sort of thing, lights go off, and he said, uh, I'm actually going to record everything, every conversation I have with her from now on. Um, and so he actually she actually has a really great website set up with audio recordings and uh, sort of his breakdown of, of what went on.
1: Which is super helpful for our investigation into this, because it, otherwise it's just us hearing a bunch of stories from a bunch of people who may or may not be reliable, mm-hmm. whereas Grant generally does have some uh, recorded evidence for the things that he says. And so we have to say that Grant, he's a former police officer at the time he was a private investigator. We have to say that he's a reasonably reliable witness. So here's what's going on. It's March of 1994. March 1st, uh, that's when, uh, during the European tour with Nirvana, Cobain develops bronchitis and laryngitis. He goes to Rome. Courtney Love, who hadn't been with him at that point, joins him on March 3rd. The next day, that's when the overdose-slash- possible suicide attempt occurs. March 18th, he's back in Seattle. And uh, Courtney Love actually calls the Seattle police saying that he is going to kill himself. The police show up at their house. He's barricaded himself into a room. She says he's got a gun. He says he's going to kill himself. The police go in. He does not have a gun. And he says, I wasn't going to kill myself. I just locked myself in here to get away from Courtney. They take the guns that he does have in the house they take some medication because he's a suicide risk, and the cops leave. On March 30th, Kurt Cobain, uh, at the request of a lot of his friends and family, checks into the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles. Uh, this is because he's trying to dry out from the heroin use. He's, you know, uh, it's a very difficult drug to come down off of. It's highly addictive. It's a very painful addiction and a very a possibly dangerous withdrawal wasn't
2: there pressure from courtney to do that too is that part of the story
1: yeah there had been like a big oh what's that word where everybody shows up at your house and tells oh, you an intervention, right. intervention but it was yes. basically
2: a room full of other drug addicts including courtney love herself so it i remember tom yeah. grant sort of like grilling her on that element being like well what's this like why are you hypocritically persu- like why does he need to get dry
1: Right, because there was several times when Tom Grant was talking to Courtney Love that her drug dealer was in the room with them, or she was actively in the process of doing drugs or had just done heroin. Mm -hmm. Uh, That scene, like, heroin went through the grunge scene like an absolute... Mm -hmm. Wildfire. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people ended up dying from it. Uh, Mark Arm from Mudhoney almost died from it in 1993. Interestingly, he was shooting up with Courtney Love at Mm. the time. Mm. Uh, there was so many, I think Shannon Hoon eventually overdosed, mm-hmm. uh, from blind melon. Uh, we could go on and on about just how destructive heroin was in that community. He goes to clean up. His daughter goes to visit Francis Bean Cobain. And, uh, from all accounts, he had a good time playing with her. He was seemed in good mood. Uh, the doctors did not think that he was suicidal, which again is not necessarily evidence.
2: No, I mean, Wait, if like, there were blinkers that went off when we when someone was, was suicidal, no one would ever do it because we yeah. have yeah. you know enough detectors around to, to know what was coming and prevent it. But yeah, it's, it's so not common. That easy. Someone yeah. will say,
1: "Oh, I don't." That came out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Anecdotally, and I have to stress that this is by no means any kind of medical advice that, or or information I'm passing along. But anecdotally, I have heard that people who've experienced somebody else committing suicide, reflecting back on the final days before the event, have noted in some cases that, hey, they actually start, seem to be getting better. Mm-hmm. They start their mood improved. And sometimes this has been traced back to them having made a decision, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and, and feeling relief around that. And so for outside observers, it actually seems like, oh, yeah, they're, they're doing okay. They're doing better now.
1: And the other possible explanation is that once they get out of that deep depression, now, unfortunately, they have the energy to be able to carry out the act. That's an interesting Mm -hmm. idea, yeah. Uh, Now, on the other hand, these are medical professionals whose job it is to look for signs Mm. of suicidal tendencies. And so we have to give them a little bit more credence than we Mm -hmm. would any of us. But at the same time, as we've pointed out, that's not necessarily evidence that the person is not suicidal. While he's there, there's one day where Courtney tries to get in touch with him 13 times. He does not take her calls. She's in L.A. The center is in L.A. He climbs over the wall. He could have just checked himself out. He was there (laughs) voluntarily. But instead he climbs over the wall and escapes and grabs a plane. Even though Courtney is in L.A. and he's in L.A., rather than going to see her, he goes home to Seattle. And this is March 31st when this happens. And that brings us into April. And that sort of brings us into the last week of his life. Courtney hires Tom Grant, the guy we were talking about, on April 3rd. And she says that what she needs him to do is she's worried that her credit cards have been stolen or their credit cards have been stolen. And after he talks with her for a while about why this is a private investigator matter and not just a banking matter, she says, also, my husband is missing. And he says something to the extent of, well, I think those missing credit cards are probably the least of your worries right now. Hmm. She says that he is missing, and she stresses that he is suicidal, and she asks him to find him. Uh, He says, okay, I should immediately go to Seattle, because this is in L.A. where she's talking to him. He says, okay, we'll fly to Seattle right now. And she's like, no, you don't need to go to Seattle. He says, well, I'd like to put some, some surveillance on your house. She said, no, no, you don't need to put surveillance on the house. Our nanny is there.
2: Callie? Yeah,
1: Callie. What's his name?
2: I don't know. Am I making that up? No, no, you're right about that. It's
1: Callie DeWitt. Okay. Callie DeWitt, who was uh, their part-time nanny and a musician and a drug user.
2: Doesn't he leave some bizarre note in the house too? Being like, Kurt, how could you not tell Courtney you were in town or something? But Tom Grant flags it as also being a weird thing.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So then eventually Courtney, after a few days, Courtney says, okay, go to, go to Seattle. And so Grant goes to Seattle, meets with Dylan Carlson, who is a friend of Cobain's. And together they go over to the house. It's dark, it's raining, it's Seattle. And uh, they go through the house. They don't find the shotgun. They find some Rohypnol again. And they also find this note from the nanny that says something along the lines of...
2: Yeah, should I find it even?" Yeah.
0: And while we're looking for that letter... We'll take a short commercial break. back we found the note
2: okay so um this is from the the tom grant website if you want to check it out it's cobaincase.com and this is uh when tom grant so dylan and him returned to the lake washington house in seattle he says inside i found a note from Callie, which had been placed on the main stairway it wasn't there the night before when he had been there searching with dylan uh, the note read in part, quote, I can't believe you managed to be in the house without me noticing. You're an effing a-hole for not calling Courtney. And that's the extent of what he actually quotes from it.
1: The line, I can't believe that you were in the house without me noticing. Right,
2: Nobody talks like no.
1: that. That is that is clearly trying no. to have an alibi.
2: That's like how I talk to my daughter if I'm like, if she's hiding in the closet and you'll just be like, I can't believe you didn't see me in the closet. Or, you know, like it's yeah. so obvious that you're standing there and she should be able to see you, but... The
0: other thing is, I mean, I don't know what their relationship is, but it seems especially suspicious given that there's a professional relationship here, Mm -hmm. right? That the person who's paying you, you're now telling them what's up and calling them an effing Mm a-hole. I don't know.
1: They don't find anything. Uh, Dylan and uh, Grant go through the house. They don't find anything. Uh, They come back out. And then on April 8th, uh, Courtney Love has hired an electrician to go specifically work in the greenhouse. And so when that electrician gets to the door, he sees what he thinks is somebody lying on the ground or a mannequin or whatever. And when he goes in, he realizes, he sees a shotgun, realizes that this is, of course, a body. Weirdly, his co-worker calls KXRXFM immediately calls a radio station and says that he has the, quote, scoop of the century, end quote, and that, quote, you're going to owe me a lot of concert tickets for this one. And then he tells the radio station, hey, Kurt Cobain killed himself. And so, sadly, a lot of his family members and friends Mm -hmm. find out about this, not from the police showing up, but they turn on the radio, and there it is. In fact, this is how Tom Grant finds out.
2: Right. He hears it on the radio. He says he turned to Dylan and asked, what, what's the greenhouse? Uh, Dylan said it was a room above the garage. Grant is like, why didn't we look there? And Dylan said, it's just a l- dirty little room. I think they keep some lumber in there or something.
1: Now, that part seems to me like Tom Grant's trying to defend the fact that he didn't notice the body. Right.
0: Can I just ask, though, where's the conspiracy here? What is the problem? I mean, he's a rich guy who's got some drug issues. He skips out on his treatment program, goes home, shoots himself.
1: Well, the problem basically is allegedly Courtney Love. Mm -hmm. Tom Grant, as he is part of this investigation to find Kirk Cobain, starts to think that maybe he is actually unwittingly part of a conspiracy to make it look like Kurt Cobain's murder is actually a suicide. That he wasn't... He starts to think, maybe I wasn't hired to find this guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was hired to find the body. <laughs> and its all, he also wonders if maybe the reason Dylan didn't tell him about the greenhouse is because maybe Dylan knew that the body was there and Dylan didn't want to find the body.
2: Well, and because it turns out Kurt Cobain had been dead for two days or more uh, and he was found that Friday morning and they had just searched it, so... He very well could have been up there already. And apparently his credit card was still even used that morning when he had already been allegedly dead for two or more days.
1: Which is weird when you think of the thing that Courtney Love had said initially is Mm -hmm. that she was worried about this credit card. There's also a bunch of problems forensically with this death. Let's start with the the heroin issue because it's not up for debate that he did have a massive dose of heroin in his system. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of a problem. Because the level of heroin in his system was enough to basically kill him by itself. What we're being asked to believe is that he does this massive dose of heroin, which at the very least would have incapacitated him. He is then able to grab the shotgun, put himself in the appropriate position, maneuver the shotgun into his mouth, and then pull the trigger. The other thing, like the shotgun itself, is a very large unwieldy weapon. Kurt Cobain was surprisingly tiny. He was a short little guy. And it would have actually been difficult for him to position that shotgun. It would have been possible, but it would have been difficult. Mm -hmm. So then we see that issue. Now, a lot of people have talked about the fact that there was so much heroin in his system. How could he have done this? There was an independent doctor who pointed out that he had seen people do an equal amount of of heroin and still be able to do some fairly sophisticated maneuvering. Mm-hmm. But the example that that doctor gave was of a man who had orally ingested methadone, mm-hmm. not intravenously injected heroin. Right. That is a completely different event. When you intravenously inject heroin, it hits your body pretty much immediately right. whereas you when you orally take in methadone, that's like maybe 1 or 2 hours. So
0: just to be pedantic on that point though, Was the doctor who is making this comparison taking this person who had ingested a large dose of methadone at the point at which he was high or at the point at which he had ingested it? At the
1: point at which he had ingested it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other issue is that a lot of uh, forensic experts have testified to the fact that they have never encountered somebody who had both taken that level of heroin and then killed themselves in any other way. It also doesn't make that much sense when you think about it. His body would have just been hit with this massive dose of painkiller. And so to choose that moment when he would have been feeling, Mm -hmm. like biologically and chemically, he would have been feeling very good to then build up the sort of enthusiasm to kill himself seems possible but not likely. But there's some other problems that we have too. The shell casing from the shotgun shell was on the left side of the room, you're going to have to imagine this in your head, shell gun casings on the left side of the room. But the way he was holding the gun, which was upside down, the shell gun casing should have been ejected to the other side. Now there was nothing on that side that would have caused that shell casing to bounce off and then end up on his left. So why was that casing on his left when it should have been on his right?
2: Do they, this just occurred to me now, so let's say it was something stage. Is there anything in the autopsy report about, like, could he have been shot and then injected?
1: No, I think that uh, the argument that people like Grant make is that he was injected first, which would have then made it much easier to, to,
2: then kill. Sh- to set it up and shoot him. Now,
1: are we
0: suggesting that he was injected or he injected himself?
1: Well, the argument is that he was injected, that he would have been injected or encouraged to inject, but it was an extremely high dosage. It would have been very pure heroin, not the kind of heroin that the average person has access to.
0: Because here's another thing I'm wondering about. If he is um, injecting himself with three times the dose of heroin that he'd normally use, isn't that already indicating his intention to kill himself?
1: Well, and that's something that people have asked too, and Mm -hmm. they said so then the shotgun seems a bit redundant at that point.
2: And this Dylan... is
0: true, it's redundant, but does it not also suggest that it's maybe not somebody trying to kill him oh, right because the... I mean, because it it is actually hard to inject somebody else if they don't want to be injected mm-hmm. right? I mean, I just know this from my kid being in hospital, you know I mean yeah, <laughs> even yeah, yeah. if you're not trying that is to hit a very a... innocent reason
1: for yeah. you to know <laughs> <this>. <laughs> yeah.
0: but if you're not trying to hit a vein, you're just trying to hit an arm yeah. you know, and you've got an unwilling person, that's not easy to do, mm-hmm. so it seems as though he would have to actually go through the process of cooking it, bringing it into the needle, sitting down, shooting himself. And if he's going to do three times the dose he's normally going to use, isn't that him already saying, okay, I've given up, I'm out of here?
1: Well, the argument on the other side would be something along the lines of, well, it would be difficult for you to convince your kid to get a needle in the hospital. It would be probably, sadly, pretty easy to convince a junkie or a former junkie. I don't know if I like that word. I think it would be heroin a lot, user It would be a lot easier to convince a fairly heavy heroin user to inject a dose of heroin, and if you if i mean you could lie about how much you were giving him, you could lie about the purity of the dose, you could lie about how strong it was so there would i don't think that that in itself is a reason enough to say that there's no way that someone else could have been involved in this
0: oh, I'm not saying there's no way somebody else could be involved. I just feel like. It seems as though he's that that act in and of itself seems to express a certain kind of intention, just about the 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 strength. And again, I don't know what Cobain's um, tolerance, or? not just tolerance, but also his his um, safe injection practices. So mm-hmm. apparently, one of the things that. Um, your, your counsel to do if you're a, a user is to use a very small dose first to check the purity. I mean, now with all the, um, mm-hmm. what is it that's? Fentanyl. Fentanyl and yeah. all these kinds of like super uh, strong drugs that get mixed in with stuff that people f- think that they're, they can tolerate. It's especially important to make sure that, oh. So one would have expected a long-term heroin user you know, to know kind of the basics
1: about how to stay alive. Although, uh, I mean, if we look at pretty much any aspect of Kurt Cobain's life, being careful never seems to enter into any of it. No. Okay.
2: But there's also other things like, so when he first went to buy the shotguns, he said it was just for protection in case someone was to break in.
1: And there, there had been a break in at the
2: place. Right. And so Tom Grant and other figures would, you know, ask, Dylan who so now retroactively is like oh he was suicidal he killed himself to be like well if you thought he was suicidal why did you let him have these guns in the mm-hmm. house and buy these guns and so it seems like it was easy once he killed himself to be like oh yeah he was suicidal yet when you question them on all these things like well why weren't you there with them? or why didn't you watch him or why did you let him you know have these guns then they don't have an answer for that mm-hmm. so i don't know
1: and there's also the question which we come back to would it even be possible for him to shoot himself after injecting that level of heroin? Mm -hmm. And this is something, again, we see sort of disagreements from different doctors, but the majority of people who have experience in this area say it seems, at the very least, it seems unlikely.
0: Well, let's maybe get into a little bit about the, and I'm sorry for how gruesome this is, but the actual shooting itself. Because, Nathan, you were talking about how the gun is very, the the, uh, shotgun has a very long barrel. very long barrel. Um, Maybe he wasn't even able to. How is the idea that he pulled the trigger with his with his thumb? With his thumb.
2: I think they've proven that he could have done it now, he, he but could had, have done but it. that you know controversy was surrounding that initially, or at least the conspiracy being like, well, could he? How could have he even done it? But I think they've proven now through sort of reenacting things that he would have been able to do it.
1: But he probably wouldn't have been able to do it without leaving a thumbprint on the trigger, right? Or some kind of fingerprint on the gun. And this is another bit of evidence that starts to become a little bit suspicious, is that there were not fingerprints on the gun.
0: If this were a a murder stage to look like a suicide, would that not be something you would make sure, like you would actually get the guy's thumb to be on Wasn't
2: it that there was no like there were little partials but there was no official one I believe like it wasn't that it was wiped clean Mm -hmm. I don't think I think there were all these little partials that they couldn't confirm that it was his and
1: this goes back to kind of like the handwriting analysis Mm -hmm. fingerprint analysis is not the exact science that Mm -hmm. it looks like on TV
0: okay so it is possible that there Elena from what you're saying there are potentially yeah there's like just that they weren't able to directly match it right because here's where what I'm sort of thinking about I'm wondering, one of the principles I always go back to is, can we explain the story without a conspiracy? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't always work, because sometimes you can, and there's still a conspiracy there. So I don't want to suggest that that's the silver bullet that solves all these problems.
1: Well, in a way, this is kind of like the classic Occam's razor idea, right? Because to have a conspiracy, you have to postulate a bunch more premises. You have to say, and this also happened, and this also happened, and... And while Occam's razor tends to be misused on the internet, I find, and it isn't just what this is idea—everything's misused, yeah, misused on the internet—but <laughs> it isn't just this idea that the simplest explanation is the most likely one. It's this idea: don't introduce things that you don't need to to have an explanation.
0: Right. So I'm wondering: this is always something I try and come back to when we're thinking about any type of conspiracy. Is can we retell the story uh, in exactly the way we understand the facts without any? Uh, conspiratorial involvement. So I'm thinking now. The problem seems to be he has got too much heroin in his body to shoot himself. Again, I apologize for the gruesome dimension of trying to think through somebody's death like this. But if I were, if I had planned to do this, um, if I had set out that day and I said, okay, you know what, today's the day. This and the plan is, I'm going to kill myself. One, I think there is a certain logic to shooting up first, just to,
2: <laughs> oh <Sorry>. no. I'm <laughs> taking a picture.
0: <laughs> um,
2: Oddly enough, there's a pretzel on Lee's leg, just like waiting, it's to, waiting be to be when, when, he, when he has a chance to eat it later. So I just wanted to get okay. a picture of it. That's
0: amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saving it. Um, okay. I think it makes sense to shoot up first. If I would also shoot up with more than is my regular dose, uh, because that's it, right? I'm out of here. I would also, though, maybe set up the gun and everything first, too. So let's imagine Kurt Cobain sitting there with his gear that is, you know, his needle and whatever else he needs to cook up his heroin. I wouldn't think that you would shoot up and then you would go walking around finding your gun and stuff. It feels to me like this is all set. Mm-hmm. And then you stick it in your arm. You pull the gun around. The heroin hits and boom. Does that account for the events?
1: Uh, it does not account for the shell being on the wrong side. Hmm. And that's where this idea that we want the simplest explanation, I feel like to get that shell to the other side, we're going to have to make a lot of extra postulations, which are going to end up making the suicide probably maybe even more complicated than the idea of a conspiracy. So, so
0: that's what you're coming down on. You are suggesting that this is maybe a case of it being a, a, an actual conspiracy theory.
1: What I'm saying about this is that the day they found his body is the same day the police declared it was a suicide. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was a conspiracy. I don't know if it was suicide. But I do know that that was not an appropriate or proper police investigation into Mm -hmm. this.
2: You know what just came to my mind, which, again, I don't want to just jump on any bandwagon when it comes to conspiracy, but... Tom Grant has uncovered or he has a couple of recordings too where Courtney Love is talking about how she has some connections with a couple of local, co- like a couple of cops and they've like done her favors before and or she's gotten information from them or fed stories and stuff.
1: This does bring up there's actually more evidence that we haven't told Lee about. Mm-hmm. Because we haven't told him about El Duce.
2: Oh man, yeah. So maybe Ooh. we
1: need to get into El Duce. This is El Duce?
2: El Duce looks
1: Hoke? like if all of my uncles had a baby, <laughs> that baby would look like El Duce. I'm looking
0: at a picture of him. And, and
2: yeah. he was apparently, what, 30-something when he was died? Yeah. When he died, and uh, when and he was he killed did, by a train, It Looks believe? like he's 100. Yes, he's, yeah.
1: Okay, so El Duce, or Eldon Hoke is his real name. He was in kind of this really yes. hardcore, aggressive music scene, and... He started to make a lot of noises after the death of Kurt Cobain that maybe Courtney Love had actually offered him 50 grand to kill Kurt Cobain. He
2: claimed it. like he, There's video of yeah. him claiming it in a documentary that she offered him 50 yeah. grand to kill him. And he said no.
1: Yeah, he said that he said no. But he said that somebody else said yes. Mm-hmm. And he gave the first name Alan. And then, as Elena pointed out, a few days after he did that interview for that documentary, he was killed by a train.
2: If, How he are you had, feeling, Lee? <laughs> if he had
0: not been killed by a train, would we have heard about him?
1: Yeah, because he was in the documentary. Right, okay.
0: Whenever there's um, an unsolved murder, like a big kind of, uh, even if, especially if it's like a serial murder or something, there is a phenomenon where people come out and take responsibility for it, even though they clearly did
1: not do it. Sure. But something else that uh, also there was was an Allen. There was an Allen. A guy called Alan Wrench, obviously that's his stage name. He was also part of that aggressive hardcore angry. Uh it wasn't he wasn't in the grunge scene, he was in this sort of misogynistic mm-hmm. shock rock kind of scene. Mm-hmm. And after uh Kurt Cobain's death, Alan Wrench came into a bunch of money. Okay. So again, it's all very frustratingly circumstantial. And like I said, I don't actually know whether I believe the conspiracy theory or the suicide—like, to be honest, both of them seem potentially true.
0: What is the motivation that we're ascribing to uh, Courtney Love here? And that's the another simplest
1: possible motivation.
2: Yeah, but
0: she's already got money. But no?
2: divorce—he—he he was gonna leave her.
0: But doesn't uh, that make her even richer? No, because oh. he had a prenup.
2: And apparently...
0: But she's got a kid with him. I mean, this is got I know, but
2: apparently up until even the week before this, because there's, I don't... Again, everyone is so inconsistent. Like every every witness you're talking to or you you see them talking. um, There was a nanny who had just quit pretty recently uh, before he killed himself. And she was saying how what bothered her the most about that time there was all the discussions of his will because he was about to change his will. And um, apparently Courtney Love just was talking about it a lot about him, like needing to sign it and finalize it and um, make all these changes, and he never did in the end. I don't think, and I don't know what the changes were he was making exactly. And
1: the other thing was that they had actually lost custody temporarily of their child because Courtney Love had been in a magazine talking about how she had been doing heroin while she was pregnant. Right. Oh wow. Okay. Um,
2: And she had called. I don't know if it was. Was it Rosemary Kerr? Was it her? Yeah, calling her agent. Uh, previously saying, like, get me the meanest, baddest divorce lawyer that you can in town.
1: Ooh, that's some other things that yeah. maybe we should totally Rosemary Carroll is kind of an, an important mm-hmm. character in this. She is the lawyer for Kurt and Courtney. Okay. And uh, Courtney Love had started coming to Carroll saying that she wanted a divorce lawyer or things like that. And while she was in the office once, Courtney Love leaves a backpack in Rosemary Carroll's office and doesn't come back for it. Rosemary Carroll's like, I'll get it to her later. After Kurt Cobain's death, Carol thinks, oh, maybe I should look in this backpack. And what she finds is a piece of paper. And have you seen a photograph of this piece no. of paper? The only way you can possibly describe it is somebody practicing oh, handwriting.
2: Oh, right. right.
1: Hmm. It's just a bunch of letter A's, a bunch of letter B's, a bunch of capital E's.
2: I, there's, there's and there's it, some it looks like
1: when you match it up with Kurt Cobain's handwriting, it's hard not to say this is a piece of paper that looks like somebody trying to recreate Kirk Cobain's handwriting.
2: Um, I mean, she just is totally on board with Tom Grant. Like, she's. This is
1: oh, yeah, order. we should have. We should, at she's this point, like, maybe. totally say-
2: sounded phony. Like, she is equally suspicious of him.
1: Yeah, if we had a list of him, people who think that Love was somehow responsible for Cobain's death, we would have their lawyer. Yeah. Uh, Courtney Love's father.
2: Yeah. Um, Tom Grant
1: Tom Grant Courtney so the private investigator hired by Courtney Love
2: El Duce <laughs> uh, El Duce clearly <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah can,
1: can I
0: just go back though to the motivation just to clarify it a little bit for me and because I, I don't remember the timeline entirely Courtney Love is the front person for a band called Hole
1: Yes who released their first big album the week after uh, Cobain's death
0: Oh okay so she was not yet making independent money off of her musical no, career. No, and in fact, whilst- she
2: was getting mad at him for wanting to stop touring and bring in all these bucks because she'd only get like a couple hundred grand for something and he was just racking in millions to do a tour. And so she was not making the money that he was. And there's more stuff uh, about Rosemary Carroll. Maybe if we can get some of these in there somewhere, you can check on that. Like she, um, uh, there's one of her commenting on Courtney's ability to manipulate the police and the press as well. And she's just like, it's amazing that she can do all this. She says it's obvious they're lying about um, Dylan claiming. He later claimed that um, Courtney had told him to check the... No, Dylan later denied Courtney had told him to check the greenhouse. And Rosemary is like, it's obvious they're lying. Like, she feels like Dylan and Courtney are in on it together.
0: So, okay.
2: Sorry, I took you off topic. No,
0: no. So I'm just, again, I'm just trying to summarize. So the idea being that Courtney Love is a manipulating, controlling, jealous person who's not nice and who's just mean-spirited and has a lot of issues of her own. Mm -hmm. And that she then orchestrates Kurt Cobain's murder either by paying somebody um, and by lying about it, by creating this kind of false uh, backstory about how he's been suicidal all these months. and But really, she paid somebody to kill him lied about it so that she would remain married and inherit all his fortune. Is that, is that what the conspiracy theory and some of the evidence is suggesting?
1: That would definitely be what the theory is. And yeah, that's some of the evidence seems to point in that direction. Now, I think at this point, maybe we should quickly talk about Courtney Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, because There's she has, more? Yeah. yeah. There is a oh yeah, it's just the surface. Fascinating history. Uh, to begin with... Her father, Hank Harrison, was the first manager of the Warlocks. The Warlocks, of course, eventually turned into the Grateful Dead. Uh, her mother is, uh, was Linda, Linda Carroll. Okay. Who oh,
0: maybe I should interject just to say that the Grateful Dead, for all the kids out there, oh, yeah. was one of the biggest touring bands that start in the 1960s and go right up until uh, Jerry Garcia's death, also in 94. I am not
1: sure. Yeah, that sounds right. And also a band that's probably more known for their fan base and their drug use than their music. That's the, right, than their music. Than their music. <laughs> uh, speaking of drug use, uh, her mother, Linda Carroll, was in the Ken Casey scene, uh, which was all the acid parties that you saw in the 60s. And here we start to see a bit of a tie-in with something that eventually we're going to have to talk about, which is MK Ultra. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I can't. We're going to go on the radio next week and talk about MKUltra. We haven't done a podcast just yet. We're on saving it. the best mm-hmm. for later. That is a good and grim one. Her godfather was Phil Lesh, the bass player for The Grateful Dead. Um, and her godmother was Del Nan Winblad DeMarco. Wow. That's who, a name. That is a heck of a name, who was from a wealthy right-wing family. Now, Courtney claims that she was given L S D when she was three. Wait, how old? Three years old. She claims she was given L S D. Uh, no, she says that her father, Hank Harrison, gave her the LSD. He has said no, he did not. He took a polygraph and he passed it. Again, polygraphs, polygraphs are I know, also not. We <laughs> got a lot of things that aren't quite science in this. Between the handwriting analysis and the polygraphs. And Appar- fingerprints apparently you can beat a polygraph test
0: by clenching your sphincter muscle
2: i have heard that and i don't know why
0: it's because the polygraph relies no, i mean on... i don't
2: know why i've heard that oh like, i don't know why i know that no no, no but
0: lee
1: tell no, us no, about no. the sphincter i don't need
2: the details for right. some reason i know them
1: um she was definitely sent to psychotherapy at three and it's Which not, is
2: so, like, what are you doing at three that you... That go to a psychotherapist. Yeah.
0: You don't even have all of the layers developed you don't yet. have a psyche no. yet.
1: You're, yeah, exactly. So I've been reading a work called uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us by a guy with the improbable name of Potash. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate. It's, uh, it's interesting. I don't know if I agree with all of his findings. Uh, but he was basically making the argument that The FBI and the CIA has used drugs against music scenes. And that part isn't that far-fetched, actually. We did an episode on Cointelpro, Mm -hmm. and we know that the FBI had a special interest in musicians. We know that they were attacking musicians. We know the same thing about the CIA. So I suppose it is possible. I also think that you don't have to work too hard to convince musicians to do drugs. Like the Beatles, before they were big in the 1950s, were already doing amphetamines in in Germany. So, I mean, it's always been a part, like jazz musicians in the 20s, But he makes the argument in this book that this was a deliberate choice to try to destroy different scenes with drugs. Uh, There's also a very interesting podcast that I'll push about this by a guy called Adam Todd Brown, and his podcast is on Popular Opinion, and he makes the argument that Courtney Love was actually an An MKUltra plant, basically, Hmm. which on the surface of it sounds bananas. (laughs) But the problem is everything about MKUltra that we know to be true also sounds bananas. For example, the idea that somebody would have been given LSD at three, in 1995, there were federal hearings, uh, people called uh, Chris DeNicola and Claudia uh, Mullen, and they testified that they had been experimented on by people who you guys will be familiar with, people like uh, Gottlieb and Gittinger, and these women said that they had been given LSD as part of MKUltra when they were three years old. So... It seems kind of ridiculously far-fetched. Unfortunately, everything about Mm MKUltra is sort of far-fetched. So then Courtney goes on. She seems to make a pattern of trying to find men who she thinks are going to be big and famous, uh, well-paid musicians and sort of hooks up with them. She does this in scene after scene. She starts off in Liverpool in the early 80s, and she does that. And she sort of, people sort of get tired of her shtick, and she gets booted out of that. She ends up on the West Coast, and that's where she bumps into, what was that guy's name? The the super angry guy.
2: In 19, uh, oh, when did they get married? I don't know, but they were officially divorced in 1989, so it must have been quite a bit before that. Um, Courtney Love had been married to a man named James Moreland. He was a frontman for a band called The Leaving Train, and so that was her first husband, and they were only married for about three months, and it was... And they got married in Las Vegas, basically on a dare. And he has some really bad things to say about her and her.
1: He's not a fan.
2: No, he's not a fan. Um, He, for example, what should I read here? Uh, He said this. uh, She definitely has an evil side. She once tried to burn my bed when I was sleeping. A fire started and I woke up in shock. It's impossible to figure out Courtney's motives. Her disdain was powerful and she came off as a spoiled little snot. Courtney is a violent person who, even in the midst of her anonymous, crummy, poverty-stricken little marriage, threatened to have me beaten up for $200 when I didn't do what she wanted. I was so scared of her, I caved in immediately. And, you know, you hear stories about her violent, um, manipulative nature throughout. Like, this is early days, but you still hear a lot of that.
1: And Kurt Cobain isn't even the only death that she has some kind of association with. In addition to the almost death of people like Mark Arm, who overdosed in her presence, uh, Kristen uh, Kristen Pfaff, who for a while was the bass player in Hole, she had been in kind of a little indie band. She was asked to be in Hole. She was concerned because she didn't think that Courtney was somebody that she necessarily wanted to spend all that much time with. She was also worried about all the drugs. Sure enough, she joins Hole. She becomes dependent on heroin. She decides to quit and clean up. She moves back home. Well, actually, what happened was when she heard that Kirk Cobain died, she decided, I'm quitting drugs, I'm getting out of this scene, I'm going home. And so she did all those things, but realized she had to pick some of her stuff up in Seattle. And so she went back to Seattle with a friend. She said, I'm just going to stay over at my place. While she was staying there, Courtney Love's ex-boyfriend, Eric Erlandson shows up at Kristen Pfaff's apartment, and the next day, she's found dead of an overdose in her tub. Hmm. And that's interesting because one of the things that Tom Grant said was that uh, Courtney Love was obsessed with this idea that Cobain was having an affair with Kristen Pfaff. So that's a lot of mm-hmm. destruction. That's a lot of death and a lot of destruction.
2: Mm-hmm. So when I was looking at some of this stuff and you know hearing all these stories about Courtney Love, and I did have a few moments where I was like, "Okay, is it like is this a, a gender thing in any way? Mm-hmm. Am I like characterizing her as?" More evil because she's yeah. a woman and well, how look can a, she, she did these what things. Yoko ono had to I was put just up going with. to say, right. is this the Yoko Ono phenomenon? Yeah, because yeah, that wasn't fair. But then I also hear like the story. Who was the reporter? Victoria something. She was not. E- she hadn't even written the book yet. Um, now, like since then, she had it was a book on Nirvana and on you know Kurt and Courtney, and she was threatened repeatedly over the phone. Courtney and, had been threatening her. And we and, have recordings of all of these. Yeah, so and she not up for debate. Uh, she physically assaulted her. Like went into a bar, Victoria, in her account is just like suddenly there was like glass flying. I was hit by something, and Courtney was dragging her out of the bar by her hair. So then I hear stories like that. I'm like, okay, no. If anyone did that, I would think that there was something really problematic. But you do have to wonder, like, if how much our perception of her, like, you know, uh, aggressive. I don't know what you want to call it, what mm-hmm. if it's her ambition or what it is or the destruction that she that seems to follow her around, you know, how much is attributed to her or not, but it's uh it just made me kind of reflect on that a little bit.
1: I think it's a super important thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But I think that she deserves perhaps some of the scorn that has been sort of tossed her way. Right. I think it, though it, whereas sorry. Yoko Ono, oh. I think that just seems like sexism in a totally. sense totally. probably That's a bit very of racism blatant. too. Yeah, absolutely.
0: But I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling with some ideas here. I feel like we can say, okay, Courtney Love is a terrible human being for having done all these things that it looks as though it's pretty clear that she did. Beat people up, you know, threatened them, all of this.
1: Overdose and uh, help other people overdose. Yeah. Like, none, none of this is up for debate.
0: And yet it seems a big leap to go from you're an awful person to you're a murderer.
1: That's true. But I would also say that there can be a big leap between you're a heroin addict and you're depressed. Therefore, you must be somebody who has committed suicide.
0: That's true, too. That's true, too. I wonder. Okay, so I have a question to the both of you, which is, given what you've told me, why did the police uh, not think about uh, murder as a possibility?
1: I've so got a, let's start there. I've I'll got a conspiratorial uh, <laughs> explanation, and then I have a much less conspiratorial explanation. The conspiratorial explanation is something that Len has already alleged to—that uh, Love had friends in the police department and the medical examiner, and so these were people in her orbit. A far less conspiratorial answer is that when the police were provided with an easy solution, they took it. They're like, "Here's a guy." it looks like suicide, it's suicide, case closed. Right.
0: The the other thing that I do worry about a little bit with this story around Courtney, and again, this is as circumstantial as all the evidence that seems to condemn her, it does seem like pulling off a murder is a pretty complicated job to do. And um, it seems like there's a lot that could go wrong here. I don't know. I don't want to say that she's not in a position to do it because that seems like the same kind of prejudicial opinions that would suggest that because you know she was maybe not as talented a musician and not as moneyed as cobain that therefore she killed him her track record is violent and it is um aggressive but it doesn't seem to be uh, how do i put this in public um it doesn't seem to be brilliant like she doesn't seem to like everything has come out, you know.
1: Well now, Elena, this is good because what we have to do now is we just wait. And if Lee we find Lee just beat up in an alley somewhere, you're like <laughs> right.
0: we were on to yeah. something. Yeah. Wait, Kurt, wouldn't it Kurt, be wouldn't it be you two that get beat up in an alley? I'm on I'm on court You just side, said she so. wasn't that bright. Ah, that's true, but you said she was a murderer. So um, <laughs> Allegedly. We never
2: we never we haven't confirmed anything. Elena, where are you
0: leaning here?
2: I mean, it's likely, I don't know, it's likely he killed himself and Courtney maybe let it happen or knew. I don't know. I don't I don't want to point a finger because it isn't, everything is so inconsistent, but that doesn't mean anything necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like, just because things she says are inconsistent doesn't mean that she killed them. Just because, you know, she's unstable doesn't mean she killed them. There are motives, but... But I don't know. I don't know where I exactly am. I think I need to think a little could, more.
0: Could, could I, if, if I forced you, if I said you had to bet here, you know, this is a $100,000 bet. Ask Nathan
2: first. Ask Nathan first.
1: <laughs> I know where I am. Absolutely. Okay, good. Go. Here's where I am. Yeah. 100% I think the police, the Seattle police bungled this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And while I can't say because I don't have enough evidence. Mm-hmm. There's enough evidence, circumstantial evidence that has made me suspicious. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I also think it's entirely possible that somebody like Kurt Cobain may have taken his own life. I also think that people struggle with this idea of suicide. It it seems like when somebody appears to have everything that a person could want, we find it perplexing and bizarre that they would take their own life. But of course we have so many examples of people who have done just that. So I can understand that psychological need in a case like this to be like, no, it can't possibly be suicide. Mm -hmm. But of course, People in those positions can take their own lives. But there's enough evidence here that I would say that I am not convinced that he did kill himself. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. What about you, Lee? This is all, a lot of this is new information to you. It is. And I have to say that
0: I, I've been more swayed by this information than I have with any other conspiracy that I didn't know much about and came into the room and you guys told me about it. I I can see that there's a compelling story to be told here uh, about why maybe there's more to the story than meets the eye. At this point, I still come down on I don't think that it was a murder. If this were a uh, court case that you had both presented me, I think as a judge, I would not be able to convict uh, Courtney Love of murder. No. I do think, though, I could convict her of being a bad person. I mean, at this point, I feel pretty confident. Again, Courtney
1: Lee lives at, <laughs> you can find him in the back alley at the corner of Elena. If you're a court oh,
0: judge deciding on Courtney loves fate. A Courtney judge. Um,
2: hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not fully convinced of either, really. How? Like Nathan was saying, you're not convinced it's a suicide, but you're not, I feel like I'm not quite convinced it's a murder either.
0: Okay, I'd want there's, more investigation
2: yeah there's so there's so many details to comb through. a
0: more thorough investigation probably would have put a lot of these questions to bed um, had they been investigated at that time.
2: oh, absolutely, yeah, no, you can't just close a case in a day or within that day. It's hard to kind of put it all together and do a picture that makes sense. Oh.